I know nothing about farming. I know squat about farming, but they also didn't hire me to come in and, hey, can you give us the latest and greatest techniques on milking cows? Like they didn't hire me for that. They hired me because they knew that I can, I can, do, I could do a good job connecting with a youth audience. And so, um, so, so that's what they brought me in for, not because of, you know, the, the particular topic domain of, you know, something that, that, uh, other speakers may, may bring to the table for that type of audience. That's my guest on today's episode of the Mic Drop Moment. He's the founder of the Speaker Lab, a training company that helps public speakers learn how to find and book speaking gigs. He has a popular podcast called The Speaker Lab and a flagship coaching program called Booked and Paid to Speak. In that program, he's helped over 500,000 people in 47 states. As a keynote speaker, he has delivered nearly 1,000 events for audiences as large as 13,000. He's been featured in national media, including Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, and Huffington Post. And he is the author of the brand new book, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building your platform. His name is Grant Baldwin. And before I get into what we cover on this episode, I was looking back because I was curious. I was trying to remember exactly how we first met, and I found my original email to Grant from 2015. At the time, I had recently left the restaurant company that I'd helped build and sell, and I'd been dabbling in a couple of things here in Los Angeles and ended up doing consulting and starting to lead workshops. From there, someone asked me to come and keynote an event for them. And I didn't really know what that meant. I thought you had to be famous or have some kind of thing to sell in the back of the room. And so I kind of classically thought that when they told me there was an honorarium, that that meant I needed to pay them. I was happy that I quickly learned that they were going to pay me. And then I thought, well, I like that. How do I get some more of that? I would keep doing this. And so I started seeking out information. And Grant Baldwin was one of the first people I ran into. And I emailed him back on March 26th of 2015 to learn about speaking, how to become a speaker, how to do it. And he emailed me back the next day and said, hey, tell me more about you. How can I help you? In today's episode, we talk a little bit about Grant's journey and mine as well, talking about getting started with speaking and how to figure out what you should be speaking about and how to market yourself and position yourself. It's a little bit of a masterclass, and I was lucky to have Grant on the show to share what he shares so well, all about getting booked and paid to speak on stages. So check out this episode. I'm sure there are a couple of little nuggets here for you to learn from. So you have a story to tell, and you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your mic drop moment. Here is your host, Mike Benino. So one of my one of the things I, I had a question about when I first started reading the book was on your new book, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid and Building Your Platform, you started off talking about your journey of going from being kind of a, a youth minister to becoming a speaker. And it you detail some of the journey, but I'm curious, what was like when you and your wife sat down to make that decision, what what was the big draw to that? What was the thing that said, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go move into this kind of entrepreneurial world from from working with kids in this way"? 
Yeah. So I'd always been uh, fairly entrepreneurial. Like I was the one in, in high school that had, um, uh, was mowing a bunch of neighborhood yards and was just looking for any way that I could, you know, uh, have my own business, so to speak. And, uh, and so I always like gravitated toward that. My dad was an entrepreneur. Um, I saw him, you know, growing up work from home and have a lot of that freedom and flexibility that, you know, we get from, from being an entrepreneur. So, uh, it always was kind of in my blood and something that I was, I was interested in wanting to do more. I just wasn't necessarily sure how it was going to fit. So as a, as a youth pastor, um, uh, I had a lot of opportunities to speak, was working with, with students on a weekly basis and high school and, and college students, uh, and really enjoyed speaking. It was one of those things I, I felt like I was getting a lot of at-bats and felt like I was, I was decent. I wanted to do more of. And in fact, if we take another step back in college, uh, I worked for a guy who was a full-time speaker. So kind of got to help a little bit on his, uh, like the, the booking, the scheduling, the contracts, logistics, travel, that sort of thing, and, and really enjoyed it. So kind of got a sense of like, this is a thing, like this is a possible opportunity. So when, uh, when we left that role as, as youth pastors, then kind of felt in some ways like back of the drawing board, like, okay, what do I want to do now? What, what's the, what do I want to be when I grow up? What is it that I want to do with my life? And uh, kept coming back to this idea of speaking, and and uh, from these various experiences that I had, from the the, the how speak, certain speakers had impacted my life, how the speaking that I had done that I enjoyed, and so wanted to do more of it. And so I felt like you know, at the time, one of the the lines we use a lot is that I felt like I had the potential, but I needed the plan. I had the potential, but I needed the plan. Meaning, I felt like I was a decent speaker, wanted to do more speaking, no idea what to do from there. And so uh, from there, I just started like uh, connecting with any other speaker that I could, just trying to to uh, do, doing the same thing that a lot of still do just trying to like you're stalking every possible speaker just trying to learn anything you can about how do you do this and how does this world work <laughs> and trying to demystify it and so uh, over the course of, of the next several years went from zero gigs which i think is important to know like everyone starts from zero uh, to the point where i was doing 60 70 gigs a year uh, and and uh, just kind of figuring it out so thankfully uh, I have uh, an amazing wife. We were high school sweethearts. We've been together for 23 years, and and she was, you know, confident to, enough to say, "Hey, you know, I, I believe in you. I support you." Um, and so let's let's make this speaking thing happen, and and we'll we'll figure it out. And so thankfully, we we've been able to figure it out to some degree. I think. <laughs> and you wrote about you wrote. I, I think a lot of people look at it, and and a lot of people, you know, sometimes this industry can be so. Uh, so showy and it's like oh yes look at me when everything was perfect and I had it all together and I, and I, I love that you were really honest in your book and you said yep and I had some random part-time jobs to try to make this work as well yeah. along the journey because a lot of people think I'm going to make the decision uh, I'm going to have zero gigs but my very first gig is going to be five thousand dollars and that's right. not the reality often. Right. Right. It would be nice if it worked like that. It's just historically <laughs> is not the case. And, and as you well know, Mike, like the, the other thing with speaking is that uh, there's typically a long lead time. So most events book speakers, you know, three to six months out, sometimes closer in, sometimes further out. Uh, and so it's it's not like you could decide on, you know, Friday afternoon, like, OK, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going all in on the speaking thing. And m by Monday morning, you're a full time speaker. Like it just doesn't work like that. Like it's for most people. It usually takes anywhere from, you know, uh, you know, two to three to four years to go from zero gigs to being able to do it full time. It's just a slow progression. And, you know, there's 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 only so much you can do to speed up the process there. Uh, and so speaking is very much a, it's a momentum business and it takes time to build that momentum. And now once you get the momentum, it's a little bit easier to maintain it. But starting from scratch, starting from zero, and you're trying to push a boulder uphill, uh, it is, it's difficult. It's tough. And I think that's where a lot of speakers uh, quickly realize that. Uh, speaking on stage, maybe the, you know, the glamorous, fun, sexy part, but it requires a lot of work behind the scenes that nobody sees or nobody often thinks about uh, in order to, to earn the opportunity to speak on stages. And, and I think a lot of people struggle at the beginning because they have this desire 
And, and, and I, and I think you've seen this. I mean, you've, you've coached thousands and maybe tens of thousands of people at this point through your programs. I think a lot of people have that drive to say, I want to be on stage, but they haven't yet figured out you, you talk about this in the book, the speaker roadmap of the first thing you have to do is figure out what problem, select a problem to solve. And I think a lot of prob- people, the problem they want to solve is, well, I want to be on stage yeah. and that, that doesn't really work for the audience so much. No, that's exactly right. Like you, you have to be really clear uh, of who it is that you speak to and what is the problem that you solve for that audience. So just saying like, uh, I just like to speak or I have a cool story. I just want to tell people like, uh, frankly, nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> you want to be a speaker. Nobody cares that you want to be on stage. Nobody cares that you had a crazy story that you've overcome some, some obstacle. Now, again, not to take anything away from you at all, but nobody cares. Like the audience wants to know, like, how are you going to solve my problem? How are you going to help me? How are you going to provide a solution to what I'm working with? Either, you know, personally, professionally in your business and uh, leadership and customer service and marriage and family and whatever it may be. Well, how, what is the solution that you are going to bring to the table? Uh, and so that's the way you have to think about it is you have to be really clear about that. Now, the danger is, is that oftentimes as speakers, we think that the more things we can speak about or the more people we can speak to, the more types of audiences or industries we can speak to or relate to, the more opportunities that we have. But the reality is, is the more specific, the more narrow, the more niche, the more focused, more clear you are, the easier it is to actually find gigs. And I think, I think Mike, I think you're a good example of this. Like uh, when you guys started speaking, uh, you you started by speaking primarily in the restaurant space, and it was a space that you knew it's low hanging fruit for you. You knew you weren't going to stay there forever, but like I'm going to pick a lane that I know something about and start to build up some traction uh, instead of trying to say, okay, if I can do you know on this topic for restaurants, then I could also do for insurance agents and for um, for airline companies and for uh, for marketers and like everybody and anybody. And it's like no no focus just on restaurants and you've started to get some traction there and then allowed you then to pivot to some other industries and some other opportunities. But by just picking one lane and starting there, again, it's counterintuitive, but it actually is easier to find gigs that way. Yeah. And it's, it's exactly, I remember, I remember this was five years ago, six years ago, almost. I remember emailing you. I was in my house. I emailed you and I, you and Jane Atkinson were the two people I found that I thought, oh, they seem to have a roadmap. They seem to, to, to uh, not only to, to not only share like, yeah, you have the potential and be inspirational, but you also had a way to show people the planet. I remember emailing you and having this conversation and, and the same with Jane. And what I realized at that moment was what's going to be the easiest yes for me. That's, yeah. That was really it for me. It was like, who's going to say yes to me? And it was like, well, I've done this thing that they all want to do. I've, I've sold, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars actually worth of restaurant companies. And that's what a lot of these people are trying to do. So I guess I'll go try to teach them how to do that. Yeah. And I actually stayed, and you're right. I stayed with that until I didn't even I didn't even go out and ask other people. I was speaking at a conference and it was a franchise conference. And at the franchise conference, there was not only like restaurant franchises, it was there were cell phones, there was uh, you know, hotel people, there were all the things that people with money who wanted to start a business you could buy into. And so there were all kinds of opportunities. Uh like water, like you know, when you go to the grocery store and there's like the water, right, right. Your water, those kind of companies. And someone from there saw me and said, oh, well, you come speak to us. And I initially said, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't really know. You know that I, I mostly work with restaurant, retail, hotel kind of folks. I don't really know if it's right for your company. And they're like, no, no, it's right because of this and that. And I was like, well, I don't know. And they like convinced me uh, because I think I had that. You, you also talk about this in the in the book. I love that you name all these things. You talk about the expert myth that we think we have to know it all in order to be able to share anything. 
Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is like um, expertise is oftentimes in the eye of the beholder because what we view as, well, I don't, you know, you may look at yourself and, and be like, I, you know, I don't, I know something about restaurants. I don't know what, I don't know a ton, but you've worked in that world. I haven't. So to me, you are the expert. So in, in some cases, it's like it, what you think of yourself is irrelevant because I view you as an expert. So the, the analogy that we, we use a lot, and I think we talk about in the book is like when I go to the the local mechanic to have my car worked on, like I, I know squat about cars. I know nothing about it at all. So whoever's working on my car, like that person to me is the expert because they know more about cars than I do. Now, I know that they're not the world's greatest expert on cars. They know that they're not the world's greatest expert on cars, but I don't care. Like I'm not looking for the world's greatest expert on cars. I know that this person knows more about cars than I do. Uh, and because of that, because I trust them, then I'm going to listen to whatever it is that they recommend or what they have to say. And so the same thing is true with you. Like, you know more about that subject or topic than someone else. And so therefore, like they view you as the expert. Uh, and so we oftentimes we don't think of ourselves as that because we are looking up uh, at other people who know more about it than we do. But remember that our audiences or event planners or decision makers aren't necessarily looking up at those other people or considering those other people. They are interested in in hiring and working with you. So as long as you feel as long as you know, like I I. I know something about this that the audience doesn't know that I can share with them. Uh, that's that's ultimately what the event planner is looking for. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And in some ways, it also makes it easier to figure out what to go say to them because you're like, oh, I'm just talking to the person who's two, three, four, five steps below me. So what was I going through then? So if you're exactly. thinking of marketing, establishing your expertise, then it becomes easier to say, oh, I know what they need to hear because what did I need to hear five, ten years ago? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, totally. You're, I mean, you're, you're, you're figuring it out as you go. Um, and, and you also, again, you know that there's people that that know more about it than you do. But again, that that their event planners, they may not be looking at those people. They're they're looking at you. They're interested in you. Let's take a little break from this interview with Grant and talk about imposter syndrome really quickly. He was talking about being an expert. He was talking about the things you can do to stand out. And one of the things I think is interesting is how so often there will be so many people around us who are saying, oh my gosh, you're so helpful with this, or you're the person I always come to for this. But then we don't feel like we have enough figured out to go start sharing it. I find this a lot when I'm working with people on helping to shape the content of their actual speeches or their stories. One of the things that they struggle with is because they don't know everything, they should share nothing. When you think about it that way, it feels kind of selfish and not selfish in like a bad way that people are being mean, but meaning if you have something to share, if people are coming to you for advice and help, then why not start sharing it? Why not start getting it out in front of people? What is the next step for you? How can you learn more? But while you're learning more, while you're doing more, you can actually go out there and help. Now, this is different than reading a book and then claiming you're an expert on something. That's not the same thing as having some expertise in an area more than other people, like Grant was talking about with the, the folks at the car dealership. It's not the same thing as lying. There's a lot of people out there that are selling things that they actually haven't done or don't know how to do. I'm talking about when you actually have helpful expertise, when you see the world and you say, oh, I could help that person. You should get out there and start doing that. And that's a really helpful place to start looking when you step out and be a speaker. So if you're sitting there thinking, I don't know, what am I an expert on? What do people ask me about? Go there, make a list of all of the things that people come to you for advice for. Make a list of all the times you look around and you say, wait a second, 
this could be this way, or this could be this way, or it would be so much better if they knew how to do this, or if they knew this about themselves. That's usually a great starting place. Start putting those ideas out into the world. Do a Facebook Live. Do a local a local talk at the library or Rotary Club or a co-working space, and start to see... How does the world respond? Was it helpful to them? I was always surprised at this when I first started teaching public speaking and storytelling as well, that I thought that what I thought that there was going to be some place where people thought, oh, I, uh, I need I needed to give them like the most amazing magical thing. And really what I realized is because I was a little further along than other people, because I was a pretty good coach that was enough. That's what they wanted was to help them come out more. I didn't need to know the history of, of ethos and pathos and logos. And I didn't need to know every speech that ever been written. What I needed to do was to be able to be helpful to the people in front of me. And I bet you there are a lot of ways that you can do the same exact thing. So think about that. And let's go back to our interview with Grant Baldwin. Don't miss a single mic drop. Subscribe to the mic drop moment. And so when you first, when you first went out, did you, because initially you're in the book, you talk about your first gig was, was a 4-H conference, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, um, um, it was a, a 4-H youth conference. Uh, and I was living, it was probably three hours away from here or so. Uh, and so they hired me to speak for, do like a 45 minute uh, keynote or so for about 300 uh, high school students. Uh, and they paid me a thousand dollars, which was just completely mind boggling. <laughs> now, I think this is also something important to note that for that particular audience, a 4-H um, audience, if, if people aren't familiar, is, uh, is oftentimes like students who are come from like an agricultural background, from like a, um, you know, like farming type background, and uh, which is a, a big part of the, the, you know, the U.S. population. I know nothing about farming. I know squat about <laughs> farming, but they also didn't hire me to come in and, hey, can you give us the latest and greatest techniques on milking cows? Like they didn't hire me for that. They hired me because they knew that I can, I can do, I could do a good job connecting with a youth audience. And so, um, so, so that's what they brought me in for, not because of, you know, the, the particular topic domain of, you know, something that, that, uh, other speakers may, may bring to the table for that type of audience. Right. Like what is the best way to like husbandry of rabbits or something like that? I, yeah, I guess like I zero <laughs> clue, zero clue on any of that stuff. I'm uh, a suburb city boy. Uh, so I know, I know squat about that stuff, but again, they, like that, that's not what they were hiring me for. Yeah. It see, it actually seems like there's a trend I I'm seeing with a lot of the folks that come to me to help them with the actual, like on stage delivery thing. It, and I'm curious if you are too, there's more and more from, from event organizers and event planners I'm seeing less people say, come in and teach us the five hacks and the seven tips, because those are easy to find on the internet these days. People can pull that up when you're talking. And I'm finding that more and more, more and more folks are asking people to come in and get our people to understand the stakes if they don't find the five steps or something like that. And that, I don't know, that this idea of we have to have a perfect five-step process, unless you're doing workshops, I'm finding there's less and less interest. Are you seeing that same kind of thing? Well, what's interesting is like, is, uh, there's no like right or wrong model of like, in order to be a speaker, you have to, you know, you have to have five steps or three steps or seven steps or whatever <laughs> it may be, or you have to, um, you know, have more of like a Seth Godin approach, which is zero steps. And you're just kind of talking about it theoretically and letting people apply, uh, as, as they may to their specific world. So what's great about being a speaker is there's not a one size fits all as, uh, in terms of like, you have to do it this way in order to be a speaker or you'll never book gigs. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure you can find examples 
on both sides of it. You know, some that talk more from like a, a theoretical principle standpoint, like the stake standpoint that you, you talk about, and some that say, you know, that they're going to give more the the practical, actionable, you know, in in the weeds uh, type of strategies. And both work. Both can be effective. Both there, there's a, a place for both. So um, I think that's one of the, the the things that's most encouraging to me just about the speaking industry is like you there there are there's a blend between what organ organizations and events are looking for. But you also get to determine the rules of the game for yourself, uh, meaning that there uh, there's some speakers that we both know who want to do 100 events a year and some that, w- that want to do five events a year, 10 events a year. And you get to decide that you get to decide like, um, you know, we have friends who want to do, um, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand before we started recording. You mentioned that you really enjoy doing like um, uh, in-person events. Um, we like with what we do on our side, we don't really do any in-person stuff. And again, it's not that one's better or worse than the other. You can make a case either way. But um, like both are effective, like both work. And so the same thing, again, is true in speaking in general, that um, there are some speakers that are that uh, that have one type of style and some that have a different type of style. And both are effective, both both work. And so I think that there's there's room for both in the marketplace. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's it's an it's exactly like you said, because there's also just because the because the buyer often doesn't have a specific uh, model that's like, oh, I know exactly how speakers work. It does give us some room to say, oh, this is what I do, and I do it this way, or I do it that way. And there's a lot of flexibility in that. It's interesting. Yeah. What? So, so I, I'm curious to go back. When you so that that first like paid gig with the with the 4H conference, obviously that was with kids. So was that your initial area was with kids because that had been what you had done before with children? Yeah. So as a, so as a, a former youth pastor, like I had a lot of experience working with, uh, high schools and colleges. Um, and so that was the the world that I really got started in on the speaking side of things is did uh, a lot of high school, uh, conferences, a lot of school assemblies, a lot of, um, college events, a lot of uh, freshman orientations at colleges and universities. Uh, and so that was really the, my world was again, primarily high schools and, and, and colleges. Uh, and then we started having more opportunity. Like you said, you, you kind of start with something that, you know, and then it kind of evolves from there. So, you know, started to have some more, you know, uh, um, speaking to parents or speaking to teachers and then started having more companies that were interested in me coming to speak. And uh, then as I started teaching more about, you know, some of what we've talked about today on on uh, how to find and book speaking gigs and started having more um uh, entrepreneurial events that were uh, approaching me and saying, Hey, can you, you know, can you come teach our audiences about speaking and how they can use speaking in their business? So, uh, yeah, I think it's also, it's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a natural kind of evolution and progression for, for most businesses. And when you first, when you first went out, when you first said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this, this, um, you know, kind of my life as a, as a working in the church and I'm going to go to work as a, as a speaker, was the topic like right off the bat? Did you know what the topic was for that audience, or did it take a little bit of time to kind of figure out? Okay, I'm starting to sort out what they like, what they need, and what they want. Or did you know right away? I'm going to go speak to. I'm, I'm going to go be a youth speaker, and it's going to be on this topic. Yeah, I felt pretty clear from the beginning, and part of that just came from some research. So one thing that you can do, uh, and this is something that we we talk about in the book, is doing a little bit of validation within the marketplace to figure out, like, just because you care about a topic or just because you're passionate about a topic, doesn't necessarily mean that organizations or groups are hiring for speakers to talk about that. You may be the world's greatest expert on underwater basket weaving, but if there's no events around that, or if organizations aren't hiring speakers to talk about that, then it's going to be hard 
hard to get gigs, no matter how good you are at that topic or how passionate you are. So there's definitely that overlap between here's what I care about, here's what I'm passionate about, here's what I know something about, here's what I'm interested in, versus what are organizations and groups actually hiring speakers to talk about. So one of the things you can do is is you can do a simple search for other speakers who are doing something similar to what you want to do and see what they're talking about. And so not to say like, oh, they're talking about this. So I'm just going to copy and paste that and rip that off. No, no. But like if they're if they're like in, like with students, for example, um, the main the main themes are going to be things like leadership. Uh, about motivation, uh, leadership, motivation, and um, prevention is a big topic as well. So, uh, drug and alcohol awareness with high schools and colleges. Well, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I don't drink. I've never done drugs. I, I, um, I don't have any really experience there, any you know firsthand experience or knowledge or, or passion there. So I knew like that wasn't a super relevant thing. And so the bulk of what we did was around uh, leadership and motivation for uh, for students. And so some of it was just paying attention to that and seeing what other speakers were doing and figuring out what's, you know, what's my angle on it? What's my, what's, what, um, what can I talk about? That's something that's, that's similar, but different. Um, if that makes sense. So that's kind of, kind of how we approached it from the beginning was just paying attention to what, what was working in the marketplace and figuring out how that, how that worked with what I was interested in talking about. Well, one of the things I've always, I've always really, well, a couple of things I've always admired about you. One is that you, you, you have, uh, you you appear to have this great uh, family life. You show up for them, and and I have you went on this great sabbatical. I want to ask about later, but you you have that too. You are just a really great, kind, nice person in general. And three is that you're very very smart business person. And I think that that's one of the things that sometimes people go into speaking because there's a passion side, and they they haven't thought through the business side. And so I think that is a perfect example of what you would do if you were a startup. If you were starting a business, you would say, okay, well, what is the world going towards and how can I show up there with something of offer? And I think that that's one thing that a lot of speakers struggle with sometimes is to say, what is the business case for me to start a business? The yeah. same way you would if you were a startup, right? Yeah, 100%. And well, one, I, I genuinely appreciate the kind words, um, but it kind of reminds me in, um, uh, and I've used this example before, but uh, in Michael Gerber's book, um, uh, The E-Myth, he talks about the difference between, uh, he uses the analogy of someone who's really good at baking pies. And so he basically says that the, it's a difference, being a good baker and running a bakery are two different skill sets. Just because you're an amazing baker doesn't mean you're going to be amazing at running a bakery. And there are a lot of speakers who are amazing on stage. They are amazing at baking pies. They're amazing bakers and they suck at running the bakery. Uh, and so they, they have to either get better at it or they have to find someone who can help them get better at it uh, or help them run that side of it. Um, because just because you're, again, just because you make the world's greatest pies or just because you're the world's greatest speaker, you ha there's a business side to it. You have to, just because you have a great website, just because you have an awesome demo video, just because you did a TEDx talk, doesn't mean anyone cares. Like you still have to hustle to book gigs and to start and build that momentum. So you really have to, you you have to have both sides of it. Like the, the, the part that we like, the part that we want to do is the standing on stage and speaking. But in order to be able to do that, like you have to, you have to understand the business side of it. You have to understand the entrepreneurial side of it. You have to understand the selling side of it. Like you have to get those parts of it. Otherwise you're not going to be in business and you won't be able to, to create your art anymore. Uh, so you have to, you, 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 on the artist the entrepreneurial spectrum, most people, most speakers tend to gravitate more toward the art side because that's the part that they like. But if you don't understand the entrepreneurial side as well, then ultimately you don't, you don't get to create your art anymore.
yeah, there becomes there becomes a block where you can't afford to, unless you're independently wealthy, you can't afford to keep doing that. Totally. And and so when you so you went out, you went out with your topic, you knew what you were gonna do, you knew the target audience, and then how did that and it sounds like the marketplace came to you and then the, the parents wanted you, the teachers wanted you, and then somebody who had a business said, wait a second, what you're doing there. How did that um how did that kind of shift for you? Did you say, oh, wait a second, I understand how I need to start shifting my marketing, how I need to start shifting my message? Was there a point where you said, okay, I'm gonna more directly go out here? Um, to speak to adults, to speak to business things? Or what was that moment where you said, I'm going to make this shift? Yeah, there's definitely some conscious decision there of doing more of that direction because whoever it is that you speak to, whatever the problem is that you solve, you want to make sure that your marketing reflects that. And so uh, so if the majority of of the speaking that I had done early on was for students and therefore the uh, the marketing materials reflected that, then showing a demo video of me speaking to a group of, of of college students isn't going to work if I'm trying to be hired to speak at some you know company or corporation. So I needed to make sure that we shifted that to uh, create a demo video and create a website and create language around that. That uh, here's here's the thing that I do. And so so um, being a speaker for students is something that got me started, but it's also something that. Uh, I wanted to make sure that it's, it's not a, a pigeonhole um, that 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 you get stuck with. So in the same way that even like if we fast forward to today, um, the the bulk of the people who come to uh, who find out about me or the speaker lab or what it is that we do are not necessarily interested in hiring me as a speaker. They're typically interested in learning about what we could do on this topic of, of teaching people how to, to to find and book gigs. And so we wanted to make sure that our, our website, our marketing materials, all of that reflects that. Uh, and so some of this is... Um, it's it's a mix of like paying attention to the marketplace and what's working, what's resonating, but it's also uh, c- being calculated and determining what is the business that you want to be in. What's the business that you want to create? What is it that you want to accomplish? So, for example, I know uh, I know plenty of speakers who, and Mike, you know as well, who all they want to do is be full time speakers. Like they don't want to do coaching, they want don't want to do seminars, they don't want to do books, they don't want to do courses. They don't want to do any of that stuff. I just want to go speak in the transaction, which is fine. Um, and I know some, uh, some speakers who say, I don't, um, I like speaking, but I don't want to travel that much. So I want to, um, you know, I want to do, you know, five or 10 gigs a year, but I want the bulk of my revenue coming from, you know, again, coaching or consulting or, or something else. And again, it's not that one's better or worse than the other. You've got to determine what makes sense for you. So for me, I got to a point where, uh, I kind of felt like I, I saw the writing on the wall in terms of, I was, um, I was doing about 70 gigs a year. I was on the upper end of what I felt comfortable charging in that market. Uh, and so the the I had a buddy tell me early on in, in my career, he said that speaking is a very high paying manual labor job, meaning <laughs> that we get paid way too much to stand on stage and run our mouths. But the nature of it is you have to show up. And it's kind of like a surgeon. A surgeon may do a you know a procedure for a couple of hours and get paid a ton of money. Um, but the downside is that that surgeon has to show up. They can't do that from home or they can't do that from remote. They they have to actually be there. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the same type of thing with, with speaking. So I knew at some point there's going to be this limitation because either you have to do more gigs or you have to charge more. And both work, but they weren't necessarily what what was appealing to me. And so again, just kind of thinking through like, all right, let's, let's mentally play this out of if we stay on this path, we stay on this trajectory over the next coming years, where is this going to lead? And is it the type of destination that I want to arrive at? Or if it's not, then what do we need to do to start to pivot, to move a different direction that leads towards the kind of business and ultimately the kind of life that I want to have? Like you you mentioned 
Um, uh, I'm married to my high school sweetheart. We have three girls. Uh, so it's me in a house of women. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, I absolutely adore my family. Like my family is deeply, deeply important to me. So I wanted to make sure that uh, I built a business around them and the kind of lifestyle that we want to have. So making decisions that fast forward in my mind that lead to that kind of outcome and that reflect those kind of priorities and values you have to think through versus like you you wake up one day and like okay i built this business the speaking business or otherwise and i arrived at this destination but ultimately it's not the type of business that i want to have or it led me to something where it checked a bunch of boxes but uh, i had to make a bunch of these trade-offs in the process and it wasn't it wasn't what i signed up for so um so I think you you just uh, it's like Stephen Covey says you have to begin with the end in mind and determine you know, where it is that you're going speaking business or otherwise uh, and then kind of reverse engineer what you need to do to get there. And so when that happened for you where you said okay wait a second I don't I don't <laughs> seventy gigs a year not seeing not seeing my my the the women in my life who mean so much to me did you have a clear idea of what you wanted to do next? Or was this another opportunity of the marketplace where people were coming to you and saying, Hey, I want to do what you're doing. If you're, if you don't want to do 70 gigs, send them to me. And you realize, Oh, wait a second, I could help people do this thing. Or how did that come about where you started the speaker lab and you started, uh, the, the program booked and paid to speak. Yeah. So whenever we, uh, when I was doing 60, 70 gigs a year, uh, again, I had a lot of people who were asking me, Hey, how do I become a speaker? And so then we, uh, then we created that our first program, uh, called booked and paid to speak. And, um, and just basically started teaching, you know, the the, the business side of speaking and teaching a system of here's how you find and book gigs. Uh, and from that, we just, we, started learning more on the, the marketing side of, of how do we do more of this. And so basically like as that took off, as that increased, then I started decreasing the amount of gigs I was doing. So it went from doing 70 gigs to doing 50 gigs to doing 40 gigs to doing 30 gigs. And so now like I still speak, but it's not nearly as much as I used to. Uh, and so again, it's not like this, you know, uh, Friday to Monday type of switch. It's, it was a gradual, you know, over the course of a couple of years of going, okay, as this one thing is, is increasing, then I'm going to decrease the other side of this thing and spend more energy or focus on this side of it. So, um, Again, it was just it was it was in some ways like paying attention to the market, but also a conscious decision of I still really like speaking. Speaking is a lot of fun, but um, I mean, as you all know, like the travel is non glamorous, it's non sexy. Um, being away from the family is not fun. Uh, there's there are. Uh, speaking can be a lot of, uh, uh, it's a lot of waiting. You're sitting on airplanes, you're sitting at hotels, you're sitting backstage, you're, you know, sitting in rental cars, you're, you're just, you're waiting a lot. Uh, and so I knew that like, I, as much as I enjoy, um, speaking, I also, like we touched on earlier, like I really enjoy entrepreneurship. And so I knew that this is a way that, um, what we do now, it may be a way that I can help more people and create more impact than what I could do. Uh, if it was just dependent on me going to stand on a stage. Yeah. And I, and I think there's a lot of people, you know, you were talking about all the different business models and all the different reasons people do this and what kind of life they want. And I think there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of people who say, put me on stage and, and give me the hundred gigs a year and I'll, I'll be in one city at 9am and I'll get to the next city by 5pm and I'm happy to, to do that kind of thing. And I think there's also a lot of people who are saying, wait a second, how can I, how can I spread this out a little bit? How can speaking support the other things that I'm doing? Yeah. And so as you you know, when you think about that, and do you have people who have gone through your programs that say, wait a second, I want to think of this other offer. 
if someone is thinking of that, what would be some of the easy places that you think this is a little teaching here? This is some some free Grant Baldwin teaching for the for the audience here. How do you have them think through like what would you go and teach? What else could you offer if you didn't just want to be a road warrior? Yeah, I think you. Um, some of it just starts by by paying attention to what are the people commonly asking you. So that was one thing that I noticed was what are the by the time you start getting questions, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, multiple times from different people, then it's something you ought to pay attention to because again, people are perceiving you as the expert. And I remember, um, I don't know that I fully subscribe to this, but I remember a uh, a friend saying one time like when someone has asked me the same question like five times or or different, I've heard the, the same question from five different people, uh, then I create a product around that. Because again, enough people have come to that person as the authority, as the expert. Now again, I, I, um, I think one thing that we have done very well within the Speaker Lab and what we do is we don't try to offer a whole bunch of different programs and products. Uh, we don't have you know 19 different courses and programs and yada yada yada. Uh, we really keep it very tight and concise and do you know one or two things, but we do those one or two things really really well. Uh, so I think that that's one thing to to pay attention to is uh, what what else is in the marketplace? I know for me, at least when I, when we got started with the speaker lab, uh, I couldn't find a lot, um, uh, of people who are teaching the business side of speaking. Like you mentioned, even whenever you were getting started, you said you, you came across us and you came across Jane. And uh, at the time there wasn't many other options today. There's, there's, there's several more options. Uh, and a lot of people who, who, who teach similar things, but, um, uh, so I think some of it is, is paying attention. What's you know what's in the marketplace? What are the opportunities that exist? <clears throat> but again, it's also just kind of validating um, uh, validating what people are interested in. And that was one thing that we were cautious in doing is you don't want to make the mistake of like you create a product uh, in a vacuum and then you take it to the marketplace only to figure out like yeah they're interested in it but they're not interested enough to pay for it uh, or it's it scratches an itch but it's like it's not that bad of an itch that I'll end up tolerating it uh, and so you want to make sure that ultimately you're creating something that uh, that connects the dots for people that are like yes I'm so glad you created this I where have you been all my life I've been needing this this is the solution to my problem I have to have this uh, and so that's what you ultimately want to be creating. One more little break from our interview with Grant Baldwin, author of the brand new book, The Successful Speaker. So Grant was talking about this kind of making a mistake by not validating your ideas. And I see this a lot when I work with people who are getting ready to give a new speech. They are creating something completely from scratch. And the first time they're going to give it outside of rehearsing it maybe is in front of a really large audience or in front of a high stakes environment. And I think that that's kind of a scary thing to do. We can validate the ideas in our speech in lots of small ways. Maybe you do it through Facebook lives. Maybe you do it through short videos that you share on LinkedIn. Maybe you give a local talk at your church or your rotary club or a co-working space near you. It's a way for you to test the ideas, see what works, what doesn't, validate what's in your talk. Now, this even applies to businesses. I work with so many speakers who have created big, beautiful websites and they make a website and they put the copy and they hire the best people and they've never validated that that's actually what somebody wants. Amy Porterfield talks a lot about this through her work with Digital Course Academy where she encourages people to really validate the course they want to create versus just going out and writing a course, spending all the money to videotape it, and then realizing nobody really wants it. You've got to be really clear about what are people saying? What do they want? What are they looking for? And then seeing how can you be helpful there? This doesn't mean you need to sell your dreams that you shouldn't create the business you want to create. 
But it does mean that if you want people to give you money, you've got to listen to what they want, what they're looking for, and then find ways to help them get the things they're talking about. So validating your idea and even validating the content of your speech is a really strong way to make sure that when you do go out there, the world's ready to listen to you. Let's head back in with Grant. But again, also, I would go back to um, uh, making sure that you begin with the end of mind for yourself personally of what it is that you're trying to create or accomplish. So I know, so for example, for me, um, like we were touching on earlier, we don't really do live events because um, I, I just don't really want to do live events. Uh, I don't really do any one-on-one coaching because I just don't want to do one-on-one coaching. Uh, and so all these things are like are good things. And I know plenty of other speakers who, or co- coaches or entrepreneurs who do those things that are all like, well and good and there's nothing wrong with them but i I get to decide the rules for this game and and what makes sense for me um one thing another thing that like we've been really intentional about is um i i like as a speaker you're the product you're the brand you're the thing that people are interested in i at this stage of my life i don't i don't care a ton about my personal brand meaning that uh, I tell our team all the time, like, this is not the grant show. Like, I, I want people to join our programs and to come to us, and not because of grant, but because of the speaker lab. And so we've been really intentional to make sure that I'm, I'm I recognize, like, uh, at this moment, like right now, I'm the, I'm the voice uh, on this podcast, you know, or uh, other podcast interviews or on our own, own podcast or on the book. So I get that, like, I'm the, the face of that. But I also want to make sure that I'm, um, we're very intentional about you know, some of that positioning and branding where it's not, it's not just about me. Um, cause I, I'm, I'm, I will sleep just fine at night if nobody knows my name. So, um, so I think just, again, that, that's, those are conscious decisions based on, on what I want to do and what I want to accomplish versus saying, you know, if I put my name everywhere and was much, made a much bigger deal about my name or my personal brand, or we did more live events or we did masterminds or we did, I did one-on-one coaching, like, could that impact the business? Sure. But is that ultimately what I want? Um, and so getting really clear on that and then again, kind of figuring out how do you create a business around that? And so when you, when you, what was the point when you started uh, offering the booked and paid to speak program, what was the point where you thought, okay, wait, this is, what was the kind of that threshold moment where you're like, oh, this is, this is working. This is a thing. This is, this is the business now. When did you, when did you kind of feel that? Yeah. Um, I don't know that there was ever really any conscious moment of again like you know the, this light bulb but one thing i was really uh, aware of is i wanted to um create some type of not necessarily just create the program but create a system that we can uh we can sell it on a regular basis meaning that i had seen a lot of examples of people who had created courses and programs and the bulk of of what they did was kind of based around these big launches. Like they do, you know, once or twice a year, a couple times a year, they'd launch this this program. Uh, and to me, it just felt, that felt super risky. Like that just felt you were putting a ton of eggs in, in one basket. Uh, and so I, I was more along the lines of, okay, how do I figure out how to get a few sales every day versus get a whole ton of sales twice a year? Uh, and so thinking through something that was that was repeatable and more than this, I, I, like we're never trying to create a flash in the pan or create some type of like buzz that's here today, gone tomorrow. Like I'm not I'm not thinking about tomorrow. I'm thinking about the next several years of how do we, how do we make sure that this is sustainable? Uh, so I wanted to make sure that from that standpoint, that it was a business that 
was going to not be dependent on me. It was a business that was going to fill like a real long-term need in the marketplace um, that was that was um, created around a model that made sense for what it was that we were we were trying to accomplish. So, um, so again, I don't know that there was ever like uh, one moment where you're like, ah, aha, Eureka, we found it. This is it. But as much as like. Um, uh, I think two things. One, paying attention to trends of like, okay, we, you know, we're getting some trajectory here. I see where this is going, uh, and I think I think we're onto something. So just paying attention to that trend. I think the other thing, I think that intuition and just kind of that gut instinct in business in general is very uh, underutilized, and um, it's one of the things that's hard to quantify. But you feel like, um, okay, we're onto something. We've, we've got something here, and I can't explain it i can't define it um but i know i know that if we if we stay on this path i think we're onto something um so i think just paying attention to those kind of gut instincts um matters as well yeah and it it seems that that also then helps you figure out how the business should grow and what should be next because now what is the size of the whole organization now yeah we've got um i think we've got 13 14 people something like that did you um, imagine that when you were starting that this would be that big or you thought, oh, this would be something I do or you didn't really, you were just open to opportunity? Yeah. So the, um, so I would say this, the, the, the first question of, you know, did I ever envision this? No. Um, because uh, what I would have, what I would have thought was, um, I don't want to have to manage a bunch of people. I love my freedom. Uh, I love my flexibility. I love uh, autonomy. Uh, and and the more people I have to manage, the more people I have to worry about, the more stress that that brings, the the less I get what I signed up for, um, which again is kind of you know the, a lot of the freedom and flexibility side. What I found though, in some ways, is the opposite: that um, hiring the right people, empowering them, leading them well, that it creates um, it creates more of that freedom and flexibility for me. So uh, we have a, a great team today. Um, but again, another example of like doing it on our terms and by our rules um, has been very important. So I tell all our team all the time, uh, I, at this moment, I don't have any desire to build some, you know, hundred million dollar enterprise. Um, we live, uh, we live about 10 minutes from uh, Dave Ramsey's just built this new headquarters and we live just a few minutes from, from there. Uh, and it's this massive building. It's cool. I've, uh, I've, I've got friends that work there and I've gone to tour it several times and uh, it's a, it's a really, really cool place. When I'm looking at that going like, I like working from home. Like I don't have any desire to have a big office. I don't have any desire to have a, a big machine, you know? Uh, and so I tell our team all the time, like, uh, I want us to keep growing and building and doing what we're doing as long as we can do it on our terms. And if we can do it on our terms, our terms meaning again having the freedom, the flexibility. Um, we, you know, we just hired a guy who's a, a new director of marketing, and he's killing it. But he comes from a corporate world where he's like, I was working 60, 70 hours a week, and plus a 15 hours of commute uh, a week, and, and I'm just like, we don't do that. Like, I, I want us to work hard. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of opportunity ahead. But I'm not going to do that at the detriment of, you know, our, our health or our lifestyle or our family or friends or any of that type of stuff. So, uh, so again, just saying like, uh, we're going to keep growing as long as we can do it on, on our terms. And as soon as we can't do it on our terms, then we'll, we'll stop or we'll, we'll pivot or we'll do something different. But, um, so that's the way we've always really approached it is, um, let's keep, let's keep building. Let's keep helping people. It's, there's still plenty of opportunity out there. Uh, let's keep doing that as long as we can keep playing by these rules. And, uh, when, when we reach a point where we can't play by those rules anymore, then we, we, we got to reevaluate some things. And you're definitely one of those people who leads by example in that way. Cause last year you took a uh, four week sabbatical, correct? 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. So it was something I'd been intrigued by and was interested in. Um, but, uh, so I did it for two reasons. One, um, personally, I just wanted to, 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 to do it and to try it. I, I didn't going into, it, I didn't feel like, man, I'm burnt out. I need a vacation. I didn't feel like that at all, but, uh, I, I wanted to, I, 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 I'd talked with enough people and seen enough people who had done it and the, the benefits that they, they'd got from it. Uh, and so, so that was part of it. The other part of it was, um, uh, was a was reading a book by Mike Michalowicz uh, called Clockwork, and so he talked about the value of you know building a business that doesn't depend on you. And it was one of those things that had been on my mind. Like I said, I the Speaker Lab is intentionally not meant to be about me. Um, so I wanted to figure out, okay, let's actually test this. Let's take Grant out for a month and let's see what breaks. Let's see what doesn't work. Let's figure out where the holes are. And so we really uh, a big reason that I was really intrigued by was just a, a stress test on the business. And let's pull myself out and in the process of doing so, let's figure out what are the, 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 the things that I'm involved in? What are the decisions that I'm making? What are the things we need to make sure we have covered? Uh, I'll be back in a month, but in the meantime, like things still have to operate. So let's make, let's make sure we have structures and systems and people in place to do that. Uh, and so um, long story short, like it went great. Like I had a great time with family to, and, and friends. It was a nice breather. Um, but at the same time came back and the whole team was like, yeah, it was kind of business as usual. Like things ran smooth. Like there's wasn't a lot of hiccups. There wasn't, um, I was completely offline. I didn't check email once. I didn't, wasn't involved in Slack or anything and wasn't at any meetings. And, um, so I think they, I think they, uh, I got a text like three days in of like, Hey, we can't find the login for this one tool that we use. And that was it. Uh, it just, it ran smooth. So, uh, from that standpoint, just like doing a stress test on the business was, uh, was, was a win and, and produced a good. And so outcome. did you, on that first day, were you, were you just ready and you're like, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm in uh, mental beach mode or were you anxious at all during those four weeks? No, I really wasn't. And again, this kind of came back to, um, the people, yeah. like I just knew, uh, there would have been other seasons where I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing it, but, uh, I felt really, really confident and comfortable with our team. So I just, I didn't, I didn't really worry about it. I knew we had a good team. We had talked about it and prepped for it several months going into it. So it wasn't like a week of announcement of like, Hey, um, I'm peacing out next week. So good luck guys. Uh, like we thought it through for a while. We've been talking about it for a while, um, several months leading up to it. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a big deal. And again, I, I felt really, really comfortable with the team. And I think, um, I know I heard from them collectively and individually. They're like, it it meant a ton to us that you had the confidence in us to do this. Um, because if I was, you know, panicked and and anxious and worried the whole time, then I think it it speaks to my lack of trust in them. But them saying like knowing that you were doing this and knowing that you weren't worried and at least that you didn't show, which again, I didn't feel worried. Uh, and knowing all that, like just gave us a ton of confidence. Like, yeah, he believes in us. We we got this, we can do this. And and they did they did a great job. It's an interesting thing too, because that's probably, I think in so many places that, that, that you, you've spoke to, I spent so long speaking and coaching and inside of the, the kind of corporate world, that's one of the big things that happens. And it's like this both sides where the, the team feels like they're not trusted. And then the manager feels like they can't trust. And it's, I think that leads to a lot of the issues. So it's, it's pretty cool that your team and you were able to do that. What did you, what did you do with your four weeks? How did you fill the four weeks? Yeah, we had a couple of trips already planned. So I went to went to California with uh, with my wife and daughters. We did a uh, Disney and some of the parks out there, and then um, uh, we had a trip on the, the that first week was the Disney trip. The last week was a trip with um, 
uh, some neighborhood friends and went down to the beach for a few days. And, uh, we took a couple of other like little one-off things. I went to, um, college football game with a buddy and, um, did something else I'm drawing a blank on, but, uh, played golf several times. But one thing I was, I tried to be intentional on was just filling the, making sure I had, uh, I was filling the time. Um, and so I didn't want to just wake up like, uh, with a blank calendar, like, okay, I got nothing to do. Cause I would have been completely bored just knowing myself, I would have been completely bored and would have wasted it. So, uh, even going into it, I made a list of, all right, here's some things I want to do. Uh, I want to make sure I, I spent a lot of time, um, individually with each of my daughters and with my wife. And, um, that's what it was. Her, her and I, my wife and I took a, a little trip. Um, and so I tried to make sure I was intentional about what I was going to do at the time. So it wasn't like I got four weeks with nothing going on, um, which on one side seems nice, but I, I again, knowing, not knowing myself, I knew that it could also be four weeks of just completely wasted time. Um, where I didn't, I got to the end of it. It was like, I slept a lot and ate horribly, didn't accomplish anything. And, uh, it was a sloppy four weeks. <laughs> and so I didn't want to do that. Um, so I went into it feeling like, okay, here's some, here's some things I want to do. Here's some books I want to read, or here's some things I want to accomplish. And, um, uh, and so just, I had a plan going into it and just kind of followed that. So, um, it was good. I never, never really felt, felt bored at all. In the, in the book, you talk about, uh, going to Disney with your daughters and, or one of your daughters maybe, and she, you know, at Disney, they call the little girls princess all day long. And so you were talking about being on the lookout for stories. So you kind of wrote it down and said, oh yeah, I'm going to remember this moment where your daughter said to you at the end, uh, oh my gosh, I think they really think I'm a princess. And I love yeah. this idea of always being on the lookout for stories. When you look back or, or when they look back, what story do you hope your daughters tell about you as a dad? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, I think one thing that, that I've done a good job with is is spending a lot of time with them. Uh, I think one of the, the things that's been beneficial is um, my wife homeschools our girls. Uh, we've been doing that for like six, seven years. And a big reason for that is, is, is because of the freedom and flexibility. Like, um, we like to travel. We like, uh, so like when we took that, when I took the sabbatical and we spent a week at Disney, it was, it was in September, which was when everyone like the rest of the world is in school. And so we're like, nah, we're going to take this week and go, uh, and we're going to spend some time on school elsewhere. But uh, let's take this week and go travel. Let's go do an adventure. Let's go do a cool trip. Another thing we did in, um, in I think it was September, October, we went to Washington D.C. And uh, it's one thing to like to read about, you know, the Declaration of Independence. It's another thing to go there and actually see it. And so uh, we did a tour of the White House and a tour of the Capitol and and saw all the monuments and and you know the various museums and the Smithsonian and that sort of thing. And so um, we've tried to be really intentional about giving our girls those experiences and creating those. Um, those memories. So uh, like trips, uh, memories, experiences, moments, like those are things that we, my wife and I really, really value and we, we try to do a good job with. So um, all that to say, like uh, me being an entrepreneur, working from home and them, um, my, my, you know, my wife homeschooling them uh, gives us all a lot of time and opportunity to be together. So, you know, as soon as we're, we're done recording, I, I know I can walk outside my office door and, and they're all right there. I can give them hugs and give them a quick kiss and go back to work. And, you know, they, they have school and they have their responsibilities and I have work and my responsibilities, but, uh, I feel like the opportunities and the time we have together is, is really valuable. So I, I, I want to think that we've, we've done a good job with that. I love my family. Like, uh, I, I love being a speaker. I love being an entrepreneur. I love the opportunity that we have, but I, I love being a husband. I love being a father. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's way more important than anything that I have to do in business is, um, is being successful. But I also recognize that what I do in business, um, gives myself and our family, 
uh, a lot of those experiences and opportunities that we may not have had otherwise. So I know that we are um, we're providing a means to an end to uh, going to Disney is not free and uh, going to Washington DC is not free and doing these different experiences may not be free, but so trying to create, um, uh, create the, like create the moments and the experiences that, um, or I guess create the ability to create those type of moments and experiences is, uh, is what I try to do in business. So, um, yeah, I, I love my life. Wouldn't trade it with anyone, but, uh, I got, uh, an amazing family. Very and in that way, you're, you're, it's interesting to think of w- when they're older, what roadmap or what, what options do they think are available because of what you've created with, with your business, with your life and, and what things will they see and say, Oh wait, I can go create, I can look around the world and create anything that's needed and, and be successful. There's not one way. And, and I think you, you know, not that you need me to tell you that you've been a good role model as a dad, but I think for a lot of people out there, a lot of, a lot of speakers, a lot of business people, uh, you're a really good role model to follow. So thanks for sharing so much with all of us. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I would say this, I'm, I'm no, nothing special. I'm figuring it out as I go, like anybody else and days, um, personally and professionally, I feel like, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm nailing it. I've got it. And days you're just like, I don't know what the crap I'm doing <laughs> as a father, as a husband, as an entrepreneur, uh, and everything in between. So, uh, all of those, those, anybody listening, any of the doubts, insecurities, fears, worries that you have, I, I have all those same things. So, uh, we're, we're all doing the best we can with what just we have. Grab hands and, and walk through it. I guess. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for doing this and, and sharing uh, your insights and your story with us. It was, it was awesome to connect with you today. And that, my friends, is a masterclass with Grant Baldwin, the man who has launched many speaking careers. And I'm sure it's just going to get bigger. With his brand new book, The Successful Speaker, out in bookstores now. You can pick it up, a copy on Amazon or any of your favorite bookstores. It'll be there for you. So if you're interested in learning more, you can head over to thespeakerlab.com. That's where all things Grant Baldwin are located. Or you can go grab a copy of the book, The Successful Speaker. As always, thank you for listening. And if you're interested in telling your story better, if you're thinking, what story should I be telling and how do I do that in my business? I've got a really cool guide for you as well. If you go to mikeganino.com slash storycraft, it's a 15-page workbook. It's totally free. It's for you. I was supposed to sit down and write like a one-page lead magnet and I ended up making a 20-page workbook. But it's what you need. It's the five stories that every entrepreneur needs to be able to tell and then how to actually tell them so people want to listen. So head on over to MikeGanino.com slash StoryCraft to grab your copy today. As always, thanks for listening. If you love the show, please go leave a review on iTunes. The world, for some reason, thinks that matters a lot. And when you do it, well, it matters to me. So I appreciate you. Thank you. This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to MikeGanino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's MikeGanino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag mic drop moment? 